Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at our supporting sponsor, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It's uh, sunny and warm and not huge, just a beautiful uh, day here, August 17th, 2023. Um, several things to talk about today. We're going to get right into it. Um, uh, using the FDA approvals as a nice prompt to talk about a variety of drugs and, and cancer. So on, um, I guess it was a week ago, uh, the FDA approved a combination of niraparib and abiraterone acetate, a combination tablet. Um, uh, and of course, the abiraterone requires prednisone as well uh, for BRCA mutated um, metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. The brand name of this product is Akiga. Uh, it comes is uh, a 5500 and a 100/500 tablet. The 50 and 100 milligrams being niraparib, 500 milligrams being abiraterone. So uh, the starting dose here is 200 milligrams of niraparib and 1,000 milligrams of abiraterone. So you can take two of those for a dose um, on an empty stomach because of abiraterone's uh, crazy increased absorption if taken with food. Um, and then you have to take the 10 milligrams of prednisone sold separately. I assume if they could have co-formulated the prednisone with abiraterone, they would have done that all along. Uh, but they have co-formulated niraparib and abiraterone. So if you're going to uh, go off the magnitude study and use that nice combination product. Um, so that was the efficacy analysis um, that got this, uh, this combination and this product approved. So these were um, metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer patients getting their first-line therapy in the, in the castrate-resistant setting. Uh, they could have had prior docetaxel, and they were randomized in the study by prior docetaxel or not. They were also randomized by prior abiraterone or not. They could have gotten abiraterone as part of a, a short course of adjuvant therapy uh, for, less than, for less than four months. They randomized one-to-one to, -one to niraparib plus abiraterone or abiraterone plus placebo, again, with the prednisone. Uh, there, uh, there are two cohorts in the study, homologous recombination repair uh, deficient and not. So the hormone... Uh, a homologous recombination repair positive had uh, these um, you know, mutations in things like BRCA1 or BRCA2, ATM, CDK12, uh, PALB2, and a whole bunch of other things, right? And there are about 200 patients, or 11 patients in each um, arm, niraparib or the placebo arm. They're this, the cohort 2, the homologous rec recombination repair deficiency negative folks, is not even reported in the publication. Uh, in fact, there was a futility analysis that that had a hazard ratio on the bad side for niraparib um, wasn't statistically significant, but was not going to be significant, so they kind of shut that down. There was also a third cohort in this study, and that was the open-label combination product. So the efficacy data is not in the combination product. They did that on its own, uh, you know, taking a gamble that this would be beneficial and they could get an approval, which they were able to do. So if we look at our homologous recombination repair deficiency positive group, um, there was a statistically significant improvement in radiographic progression-free survival, so what it looked like on scans, um, but um, for the homologous recombination repair. But that was a much stronger benefit if just BRCA mutated with a hazard ratio of 0.53, 95% confidence interval 0.36 to 0.79. So FDA approved just the BRCA mutated, not the other homologous recombination repair mutations, not ATM or CDK12 or PALB2 and those other ones. Now, BRCA1, BRCA2, especially BRCA2, were the most common uh, in, that, in that group. So they, they did limit this approval just to BRCA mutated. 
There is an exploratory overall survival analysis that showed a median overall survival of 30.4 months and then wrapper of arm compared to 28.6 months. That's like two months maybe improvement in median overall survival, just less than that. Has a ratio of 0.79 uh, with a 95% console, quite wide, 0.55 to 1.12. It is exploratory, smallish numbers, about 112 patients, I think, in each in each uh, arm there. So certainly benefit at delaying progression. Is there over, overall survival benefit unknown, especially uh, I'm assuming that not everyone got second line PARP inhibitor on the abiraterone arm. So, uh, you know, we're again, s similar thing we talked about recently with talazoparib uh, in, this, uh, in this setting. Um, now, what I think is most interesting about this, uh, at least to me looking back at this, um, you know, I, I kind of felt pretty confident that I knew most things that I need to know about abiraterone because I remember following this drug, this is like right when I was a PGY2 resident, before it was called abiraterone assay, it's called MDV3100, and it was showing all this benefit. At that time, there was nothing after docetaxel for, uh, for metastatic prostate cancer, and, and abiraterone was the first one that, that, showed, uh, that showed benefit. Um, so there popped up in here in the PI, this combination product, two warnings and precautions that I had never uh, heard of. One is hypoglycemia. If the drug is given in combination with uh, a thiazolidine dione, or TZD, or repaglinide. Uh, now, it turns out that abiraterone is a, a moderate CYP2C8 inhibitor and increases the exposure of um, uh, pioglitazone um, by 46%, which would be called a mild uh, a mild uh, inhibitor based on the FDA guidance and probably would not flag in many drug-drug interaction databases. It's not in uh, this information about increasing the AUC of pioglitazone 46% is in the original PI from like 2011 for abiraterone um, or an older PI from 2011 for abiraterone. Um, but there's no formal drug-drug interaction study um, to say this. Uh, there's no warning and lo and behold now years later we do get this this caution and rosiglitazone and repaglinide also metabolized by CYP2C8. So even a modest um, impairment of metabolism for a narrow therapeutic index drug, like a drug that can cause hypoglycemia or an anticoagulant, for example, or an opioid, can cause clinically significant drug-drug interactions. And uh, that's my, my soapbox about relying um, solely on drug-drug interaction tools without using your noggins. The other um, the other warning uh, in, this, in this label that, that jumped out at me that honest, I think I knew it and then I'd forgotten it, but I couldn't have told it to you. Um, maybe in a multiple choice test, like I would have been prompted that, oh yeah, I guess I, I remember that. There's an increased fracture risk with abiraterone when it's given in combination with radium-223. And this is based off of a study from like four or five years ago, the ERA-223 uh, trial, which was a combination of radium-223 plus abiraterone or just abiraterone. Um, that actually showed um, almost three time higher rate of fractures with abiraterone, 29% versus 11%, uh, and, and 30, 39% death versus 36% death with just abiraterone. Um, scary thing, obviously that was not a, a product or a combination that, that moved forward. Uh, the authors in that study did say that patients on bone modifying therapy like a bisphosphonate and denosumab had lower rates of fractures in both groups. Um, so maybe it was a little bit of bad care uh, in that group, not getting a bisphosphonate um, in most of those folks. 
uh, in general, especially if they're castrate resistant, they're going to have bone mets uh, primarily, uh, or you would expect with, with metastatic prostate cancer. Um, so the, there's, a, I guess, a couple lessons here that I take away from this if, if you're trying to keep up and, and stay current with things oncology. One is, you know, the new drug safety profile of a newly approved drug, especially if it's an accelerated approval drug with like 100 patients, you know, that, that, that side effect profile is not fully baked. We don't, full, it's not complete. It's, it's unwritten, uh, everything. Like literally more warnings and precautions will be written later once we have more information and it's used uh, in the real world. So that's one thing always to keep in mind. Uh, and the other is with regards to the fracture is with abiraterone and radium, that was a negative study. Um, you know, it was published in Lancet Oncology, which is a journal I follow, but it was, you know, it, it wasn't something that changed practice. You know, why would you need to know that there's an increased risk of fractures if you're not going to use that combination? Well, you might, you might want to use it pretty quickly afterwards, and I think there's a, a washout period of something like a few months where you'd want to wait after radium uh, to use abiraterone and, and vice versa. Um, so, so things, you know, it's a bit of a blind spot that I had. Um, so, and that can happen. That happens with so much stuff coming out. Okay, uh, and then fast forward uh, to uh, earlier this week on the 14th, FDA approved L-Renatamab, L-Rexfio is the brand name. It's always impressive when you can put an X and an F as continents right next to each other. So the brand name L-Rexfio. Um, this is an accelerated approval for relapse. Tell me if this sounds familiar from last week. Relapse refractory multi-myeloma after four lines of prior treatment uh, with... Uh, that had to include an imid, uh, immune modulatory agent like uh, linamide, a proteasome inhibitor like bortezomib, and a CD38 monoclonal antibody or targeting drug like daratumumab. Um, this is a BCMA CD3 uh, bispecific T cell engager. Um, it's given sub Q weekly. There's a ramp up and then weekly dosing. Hospitalization is required for like two days after the ramp up dose. Um, there's a REMS program and box warnings for cytokine release syndrome and, and neurotoxicity. So it's super similar to teclistamab in, in that respect. Um, approvals based on uh, 97 patients who are BCMA naive, so they didn't receive like a BCMA targeting um, CAR-T and then get this. Uh, and the, the total response rate was 58%. Um, not, not much point in making a lot of efficacy comparisons to teclistamab um, with that. But another option that is out there. Uh, logistically, I just can't, you know, to, to keep track of all these REMS programs, if they're different from organization to organization, uh, again, we don't, we don't do CAR-T at my institution, but it seems like cytokine release syndrome is treated pretty similarly from drug to drug, and it would be fantabulous if FDA would just have one REMS program for cytokine release syndrome and ICANS for biologics that one one program to rule them all, one REMS program. Okay, so uh, the next approval was um, Melphalan. Wow, Melphalan. This is like the first, Melphalan was one of the first chemotherapy drugs studied in the adjuvant setting for breast cancer. It's called Tupam, I think. They didn't even call it Melphalan yet. Anyway, this is a Melphalan hepatic artery infusion <laughs> for um, uveal melanoma that is spread to the liver. Uveal melanoma, it's melanoma of the eye. Um, so, you know, wear sunglasses with UVA and UVB uh, protection. Uh, and the most common side of metastatic spread for uveal melanoma is the liver. Uh, melanoma's strange diseases. Fascinating. Anyway, the brand name of this is Hepzato or Hepzato kit. So there's the drug, then there's the hepatic artery infusion part of this. Um, there, you may wonder, oh, how, 
people may have been using, we've been doing hepatic artery infusions or uh, hepatic chemoembolization with things like doxorubicin for years and years and years. Why is melphalan getting an FDA approval for this off of a study called FOCUS, which is looking at response rate, there's no comparison. Why is this? If there is not an FDA-approved standard of care for an indication, a disease, something like this, a company can spend the money, do the study, work with FDA to figure out what is going to be the endpoint that is going to, you know, likely or potentially could yield uh, approval, and they do that study, then they can get, uh, you know, a patent for it and get market exclusivity, which is what these folks have done for Melphalan. Um, again, 91 patients in this study in the efficacy analysis, response rate of 36%. Uh, we have uh, many systemic options as well. And you might think, oh, if we're doing hepatic artery infusion, we go take it, some, not we, not, not the pharmacist. Somebody is taking a catheter into the hepatic artery and releasing some chemo that you're not going to have a lot of systemic toxicity. 68% uh, of people in the study had, you know, grade three or four myelosuppression. Um, that is a lot and that's severe myelosuppression. So uh, there's a REMS program for this drug. There's also a risk, and this happens with other chemotherapy drugs with hepatic artery infusion of uh, things like uh, severe, serious liver injury, bleeding, uh, portal vein hot thrombosis and thrombotic events and things like that. Um, so, uh, but the myelosuppression, you know, we're used to in oncology, but something that uh, if this is done at, at some sort of clinic that uh, they may not be as used to, um, but no one surprised. The last time we had a melphalan uh, approval was, uh, I think it was melflufen, melphalan fluflenonide, or whatever that thing was, and then and that didn't work out so well. So um, that is what I have for you today. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on uh, the app formerly known as Twitter at FarmDeetNib and on all the other social medias at Pod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.